if you could tell me a little bit about Jim Lee's X-Men number three and the role that it played <laughs> into pushing you into the world of comics. Yeah, that was the first comic that I got at a comic store that I had to, that I knew I had to come back to the comic store again. Like I, I hadn't, I probably, I'd gotten books from like Spinner Racks um, and different places before then, but Jim Lee's X-Men number three was the first time I bought a comic at a comic book store and, and realized that this was like an ongoing thing. And hello again, comic book friends. Welcome to yet another episode of Comic Converse, the podcast where there's always something new and exciting going on between the covers. I am your host, Jordan Clays, and today I have the honor of introducing one of my favorite relative newcomers to the world of creator-owned comics, Mr. Tony Fleece. Now, if you do happen to have children, or if you're simply just a kid at heart, you will likely recognize Tony from his work on My Little Pony over at IDW. He's the co-creator of the decade's most exciting and unique horror comic, Stray Dogs, which was also nominated for a Ringo Award for Best Series. Today, he joins me to talk about his latest foray into the world of creator-owned superhero comics, and that, of course, is Local Man, which he writes and draws alongside co-collaborator, co-creator, Mr. Tim Seeley. Tony, it is so great to be speaking with you today. No, very happy to be here too. Excellent. So to kick things off here, of course, Local Man is definitely at the top of the docket as far as what we're going to talk about here. Now, for anyone who hasn't picked up issue number one, Local Man tells the story of Jack Javer, or Saver. I don't have that last name right, and I think I mispronounced it twice, but we're going to go with that. Xaver, <laughs> aka Crossjack, as he makes his reluctant return to his childhood home in Middle America. Once a former member of the renowned superhero team Third Gen, the disgraced Crossjack is now barred from performing his duties as a superhero, thus forcing him to come to terms with the ghosts of his long forgotten past. And after receiving the complete opposite of a hero's welcome from his family and fellow townsfolk, Jack is immediately thrust into the center of a murder investigation with all signs pointing to him as the prime subject. So Tony, tell me a little bit about Local Man here. How did the kind of inspiration for this book come to be? Uh, Tim Seeley and I uh, had been friends for a few years and we, um, we shared a, uh, like a unironic appreciation for early 90s image comics. Like we liked, we, like some people like those uh, and they don't get that they're not great. And some people like them because they're not great, like in a bad movie club sort of way. But Tim and I like them because of what they are great at being, which is sort of like these, uh, like a like a snapshot of a time where if you were like Tim, I think was 16 when those books came out or 15 and I was 13. And it's just uh, like, if you're a little teenage kid uh, in the middle of the 90s, and then they put out this whole world like you'd seen. You'd had superheroes your whole life and superheroes were badass, you know, like they they got in. They got in kick ass fights and they had like sexy girls and, you know, like everything like the X-Men was cool. Spider-Man was cool. But then all of a sudden the guys that made Spider-Man and the X-Men left and they made shit that was just like 10 times cooler. You know, like if if Wolverine was was gruff. You know, like Troll from Youngblood was like a thousand times gruffer to, to, to me, at least, you know, like uh, if if, you know, Psylocke was was sexy, you know, Glory or, you know, like Voodoo was like a thousand times sexier just because it seemed like they were uh, uh, like unencumbered by anything, you know, like these guys could just do whatever they wanted. And it's not like they really did. Like these comics didn't even say fuck or have, you know, like there was no nudity or like the violence was 
more extreme, but it wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, Jason Burroughs level of, of disgusting, but it just seemed like at the time it was envelope pushing enough just to really, uh, inspire both of us. And so we, we sort of like would sort of talk about stuff like this and, and little secret things that we knew about and like that other people, you know, like, like obscure nineties books that we, that we were into indie books. Um, and so we sort of had this, this, that, like, that was a lot of what we would talk about when we get together. I have other friends that are sort of like that too. Um, where it's just like, you see somebody and you're like, Oh, I'm going to talk about, I can't wait to go talk about, you know, Nira X cyber angel or, you know, <laughs> Creed with this guy. Um, the, the comic book, not the band Creed. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but so, uh, we sort of talked about that. And then while I was working on stray dogs, which I wrote, me and Tim started talking about well, what if we did something together where, where like it was sort of like that sort of image thing, but a more like adult, like a, a sort of post image look at, at image comics in the early nineties. The original idea was like, what if it was like a vertigo comic smashed together with the nineties image comic? Um, and so we started talking about what that would be. And Tim has worked in Marvel and DC for years and years and sort of, and everywhere else too. Like that guy's, Colin Bunn prolific, but he can crank books out. Whereas for me, it takes me a long time to like, I'll just sit around and think about stuff for years. Like Stray Dogs was a long time before it even got written. Um, and I, I love the idea of like teaming up with Tim just to see like, well, how could I do that? You know, like how could I learn from this guy to, to put stuff together in a way that's not as tortured and so that's sort of what we've been doing is like we got together and we started kicking ideas back and forth and he had ideas about, you know, a hero goes back to a small town and then it sort of becomes like, all right, well, what if they hate him? And then it's like, well, what's the whole thing about? And we, you know, like, how can we add themes? To this? So I feel like we're sort of both of us bringing what we do to it and both of us being artists, writers in that order, but both of us are able to, you know, like we can sort of make the whole thing without having to get too many other people wrapped up in it you know like mm -hmm. we have colorists that we work with and we have you know cover artists and stuff but like i letter it uh we write it and we draw it so it's just sort of like it, it's like a real interesting collaboration where we're sort of kicking stuff back and forth and massaging things and like you know adding stuff here and I don't know. Was that a good answer? Was that seemed that like was a, very a fantastic long answer? answer. No, that was an absolutely fantastic answer. And I actually want to kind of pinpoint something that you you mentioned there because I find it interesting. You said that uh, you're artists and writers in that order. Um, is yeah. it is it safe to assume that you guys kind of your approach to this is a bit more of like the Marvel method kind of thing, where you kind of let the art tell the story and then the words kind of are coming secondary, or is that not correct? No, we're doing full script. Just, just because it is a, it is like a, a murder mystery, like a noir thing. So you want to have it like locked down a little bit, mm -hmm. but it is, it's more um, improvisational than than what I'm used to doing. That Tim Tim style is is pretty improvisational. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it is, it's a sort of in between there. But yeah, like just both of us being able to draw, I sort of, I sort of put that, uh, I put artist in front of writer for that reason also because i've drawn way more comics in my life than i've written so Fair i enough. think like until i, until I cross over then i'll 
flip it back the other way. All right. All right. That's that's fair enough. Now, as you mentioned here, both you and, and Tim are kind of splitting the writing and the drawing duties. And what I find interesting about this book is that it's kind of telling two converging stories at once, one set in the present, which uh, if I understand correctly, that's where you're penning and, and drawing. And then the secondary story, which takes place in the past, which kind of tells the origin, for lack of a better word, of, uh, of Crosscheck and Third Gen is, is being handled by Tim. Is that right? Yeah, except we're both writing it. Like we're both writing the whole thing okay. and then we're drawing the two separate things. So, so t- Tim does, um, he'll usually go through and do like a, a pretty tight first draft of a script and then I'll go through and sort of move stuff around and change stuff. We'll have um, breakdowns ahead of time. Like sometimes I'll write the breakdown or, or he'll write the breakdown, but it's like, here's the, here's the paragraph we're going to write this issue from. And then he'll do the first draft and then I'll, I'll uh, take it from there and do, do a a pass on it. And then he'll take it again. It's very like, we're passing it back and forth a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But he does the first draft because I end up usually drawing uh, way more pages. I gotcha. While I'm doing that, he's writing, which is what's going on today. Actually, he's working on the script to number five and I'm finishing up an issue. So. Well, again, then thank you, especially for taking time out of your day to speak with us. That's really exciting to hear. And I also know that kind of the the idea of of you know, like I said, these kind of two converging stories is also um, in a way kind of an ode or an homage to the early '90s image comics, which a lot of them used to be that way. Is that right? Yeah. Well, mostly Rob Liefeld's books at Extreme Studios would be flip books. Um, they would call it extra image sometimes, uh, but like the first Young Blood was one side was the home team and the other side was the away team of Youngblood. And then the second one, like one side was the story about Youngblood. And then the second side was introducing Prophet and this, these characters, the Berserkers. And I think like number four, they introduce one of them, they introduce Shadowhawk. One of them, they introduce Pit. you know, it was just sort of like a place where they would, would showcase new creators. And, you know, I, I, I never did a page count on those, but I guess, you know, it sort of makes it easier on everybody if, you know, Rob only has to do, you know, 16 pages or, or 20 pages, and then somebody else does four or six pages on the other side. Sure. Um, that was our original idea. And what it's ended up being is they, they both are getting longer all the time. And so <laughs> it was like, oh, well, you know, we can do this together and, you know, I'll do 15 pages and you do five pages or whatever, you know. Uh, but it ends up like the, the next one we're drawing is I've, I've got 24 pages and he's got like eight pages. So it's all done. right. It's uh, It ends up being much longer than regular comics. And again, from a reader's perspective, that's that's just nothing but good news. Yeah, extra content. We're not yeah. charging extra. Exactly, exactly. And again, not to, for no extra cost is exactly what we want to hear. Now, what I also find interesting, you know, both of you have, have spoken about, as I mentioned, this is in, in many ways kind of a, a love letter to those early 90s image series. And I think it's fantastic that you've solicited the likes of Todd Nock, Brett Booth, uh, Marat Michaels, you know, true image comic heroes in, in their own right from, from an artistic side of things. And I just kind of wanted to ask you specifically what it kind of means to have creators, artists whom yourself have looked up to over the years working on something that you yourself have, have written and drawn. I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know, like Todd Knox specifically uh, was like meant a whole lot to me when I was a kid, just like as somebody who I pictured him as being like, like I saw his art and I was like, he draws kind of like how I draw if I was good, you know? <laughs> and so I, I always like really, like I saw my, a lot of myself in him, you know, like, or I could, you know, I don't know how, how the, 
<laughs> I don't know how it works out if I saw myself in him or not, but it, it, he was something that I really identified with his artwork and I always followed it. But the, I originally saw it on those Extreme Studios books on like New Men and Bad Rock and Company. And, and so then when I moved out to California, all those Extreme Studios guys and and the Wild their Homage Studios, Wildstorm guys, like they live out here. So I would slowly like meet them at conventions and stuff. And um, I try to be pretty low key about you know, like how excited I am to meet people, you know, but I'm not sure if I held it together. I feel like Todd and his wife, Dawn, are very sweet people. So I don't know if they could tell that I was freaking out, you know, when when we first met. But but I met them from both being on this side of the table, you know, like we're both mm-hmm. I was I'm sure drawing my little pony or something. Uh, so it's not like we were the, the same, but we had a similar job. Um, and so it's sort of, it gives you a little bit of um, benefit of the doubt when you're talking to somebody that you're not like a, a complete psycho. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it means a lot. And, and just doing these books, like doing this book where we're sort of celebrating those books that those guys worked on gen- you know, generally, like when they were starting out um, to have them you know, sort of do a little something on them really makes it sort of, it feels of a piece, you know, it feels like, of course, this has a Todd Knock cover on it. And of course this has a, a Brett Booth cover on it, you know, like it should feel like that. No, I, I agree. I, I can only imagine. I would think it would, it would in many ways feel very validating, you know, from a, from a creator perspective and also in a strange sort of way, almost kind of like coming home or coming full circle uh, to, to the place that inspired you from the beginning. So I, I think that that's just actually fantastic to hear. Um, I also wanted to dive into uh, a little bit of issue one because there were a few things that I found really interesting. Um, there's one scene in particular in the first yeah. issue uh, where Crossjack alludes to having saved the Earth from Malbolgia, and I just wasn't yeah. sure. I mean, obviously, as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Are we going to see a Spawn crossover potentially here, or was that just kind of a, a cleverly laid Easter egg?" Again, kind of like an homage to to the early '90s series. Uh, no, I mean the the premise of this thing is that it's set in the Image universe. Like Image, like when they're founded, the setup was nobody owns Image. And those like the characters that exist in the in in the image universe universe uh, can sort of like cross into each other's books and stuff like that. And everybody still owns them. Um, And I don't actually know if that uh, working premise is still how it works, but we've just sort of been about like, let's just do it. And if somebody says don't do it, then we won't do it. You know, like and and we know how different people feel about different things like we know, uh, like Eric Larson. gets persnickety if savage dragon shows up somewhere because then he has to account for where that fits into his time so like okay. we're not we're not doing anything where it's like well this character that you thought you know you thought shadow hawk died of aids well he didn't you know like he's still <laughs> alive and he's in our book you know uh we're not doing anything like that but we are sort of like just in the in the first issue specifically sh- doing little shout outs where it's just like all right this guy like you know this world if you read those books you know this where this guy lives mm-hmm. um and we will see sort of like hints of him uh in issue three backup story we'll sort of see some of the hell fighting you know like devils and angels stuff so but it's sort of like our idea is that it happened over here you know like mm-hmm. our our characters if you're if you read image comics you read like you know extreme destroyer or you know fire from heavens or sort of damocles or something and then like 
off on the side over here was third gen, you know, kicking ass, you know, saving people from buildings or whatever, you know, they just didn't show up in the big splash pages. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, Another thing I, I just wanted to mention, and and whether or not this was intentional or not, I mean, obviously, you know, you you can let me know. But I I found it interesting again that that in this book, there are there's one scene where, again, without spoiling too too much, but there's a bar fight. Crossjack uses something as a weapon that he's essentially not allowed to use, and basically, is shortly after this happens, he basically, for lack of a better word receives almost like a cease and desist, like, hey, buddy, like, yeah. stop, you you can't do this. And I thought it was kind of eerily similar to, to some of the struggles that we've seen, we being comic book fans, have seen play out on the big screen with some of these comic book movie franchises, you know, like Spider-Man can't show up in the MCU up until very recently, I'm, or X-Men right. couldn't show up in, um, you know, the MCU because, you know, it's all about licensing rights and essentially superheroes have become kind of commercial entities in, in and of their own right. Were you guys looking to make kind of a commentary in, in that regard or, or is that just me maybe reading too much into something? I might be reading a little bit. I mean, we're obviously we're thinking about about that sort of thing, but we weren't like, it's not a direct line one-to-one or a line that we drew. We were thinking about, you know, annoying, uh, like just, just ways that he could be, that his life could be completely changed where, you know, he's, he's like, all right, well I'm at home, but at least I can still kick ass if I want to. And then somebody comes up and they're just like, also, you're not allowed to kick ass. You know, like that, that's basically what the, what the intent was behind it. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I live in my parents' basement, but I'm still a badass. And then they're just like, actually, not a badass. You're not allowed to be a badass. You just live in your parents' basement, bud. Sorry to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, taking just a quick pivot, if we can, for for a moment from local man. Um, one thing, if if you're known for anything aside from uh, you know My Little Pony, it's certainly adorable dogs showing up in in the bulk of your work. And I I wanted to first ask you, and we spoke about this a little bit in the pre-interview, but how is your own adorable dog Baxter doing today? Baxter's doing good. He's napping over here right now. He he does a lot of napping. He's a he's an old dog, so he he mostly sleeps, which is perfect. That was sort of my plan all along that he would be old and sleep. Fair enough. Fair enough. And and as I said, adorable dogs, you know, just just have a way of making it into, uh, you know, into the picture of your work. I know recently you even had Demona in, in Gargoyles on the cover kissing a, what looked to be, you know, an adorable little little terrier there. And it kind of got me thinking, why do you think that good dogs love bad characters or or bad people? You know, is it... Is it kind of something that like they just know where their next meal is coming from? Is there something intrinsic that they see in in these people that that you know others can't? Or or where's your kind of stance on that? Well, yeah, I mean the they're trusting is the thing, you know, and then dogs, you know, unless they're a specific kind of like mean dog or angry dog where something's happened to them, or you know, like the some, sometimes dogs are just you know cranky, but for the most part, you know. A do- like a dog trusts a person and that's that's sort of what stray dogs was about was the idea of just like you know hitler had a dog you know uh serial killers have dogs you know people you know abusers have dogs and the dogs think they're great and and um 
And so, yeah, that like, it's just about them being by nature, very trusting. And I think that, that it's funny again, that you mentioned that because it, it does kind of just lead into my second question, or maybe just kind of an, an add on to what we were just speaking about. But, you know, like when I think of characters like, you know, Buffalo Bill in, in Silence of the Lambs, Dr. Yeah. Evil in, in Austin Powers, you know, even Malefic- uh, Maleficent in, in Sleeping Beauty, all of these incredibly evil, evil characters have pets. And I, I was just sort of wondering, why do you think that we so often see villains depicted as being animal lovers in pop culture? Because, you know, on the one hand, you'd think it kind of defies or goes against their ethos, or is it just a way of maybe eliciting sympathy or empathy from a reader or a viewer's perspective? I don't know. I guess in some cases it would, it sort of softens them, right? You know, like if it is a kid's movie or something, and there's a scary character that you sort of uh, like in Disney movies, the villains pets are usually sort of like uh, little sneaks, like little scoundrels. And so it's sort of like a, a moment of levity that you can throw in, in these dark scenes. Um, uh, in the case of Silence of the Lambs, uh, you know, it just makes it way more creepy that, <laughs> that he has a dog. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the math is on it, but uh, precious being in that house is, is so much more frightening than if, than if it was just a, and maybe it's the the trick we played in Stray Dogs where you have more sympathy towards animals, you know, like you're scared for the the senator's daughter in the hole, but you're more scared when, you know, like Precious hurts her foot or whatever, you know, like it's just sort of like if he, he could really hurt this this very innocent character. So I think for different reasons, I mean, Dr. Evil has a has the cat. Is it a cat? Is it the bald cat? Mr. Bigglesworth. God, that's right. Yeah. But he has the cat because uh because what's his name in, in James Bond movies had a cat, right? But it's but it is a, just a thing of I think in that case it's like giving the the villain an affect or giving them something that you know something to do with their hands. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I would say it's possibly that for different reasons in different cases. Okay. Okay. Now, as we've mentioned a couple times here, uh, stray dogs absolutely fantastic. Literally leading up to our, our conversation today, I, I reread it once again, and I was just, just as shocked and just as heartbroken as I was the first time around, if not more so. And what I think I really, really love about it is, is when I read it, when I look at it, I immediately go back to my childhood in those absolutely, utterly terrifying Don Bluth movies. And I just wanted to know from your, in your opinion, from your perspective, what is the best Don Bluth movie of all time, if you had to pick one? Boy, oh boy, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the, I would think the, the popular choice would be Secret of Nim, right? Like it's the, it's the most well-rounded of those. Although I feel like American Tale is also pretty, you know, some of them are wild and out of like out of control. Like All Dogs Go to Heaven is a crazy movie. Uh, like Rockadoodle is who knows what's going on. There's it's very crazy. Uh, so I think you know like the more control he got and the, and like the more he was sort of trusted and allowed to go wild, he just he went completely wild. I think it's probably Secret of Nim. Although like what would I want to? What am I most apt to go watch over and over again? I don't know. I like Anastasia too. Any love for Land Before Time? Uh, I I have uh, brothers and sisters who are right in the age group that that one got played out 
that like a lot of Don Bluth got watched a lot. Rockadoodle and Land Before Time, though, I feel like I've probably seen a million times. So I, I could if it got put on, I could recite it, you know, word for word. Uh, and so I, I feel like I've seen it enough for my whole lifetime. But that also is a pretty straightforward one. You know, like there's some goofiness in it, but it is, you know, like I, tr- I, I guess I think about it in terms of like how they've held up. Oh, man, it would be worth going in and, and giving them a look again. But that one is pretty straightforward. Like there's not a there's not like a wacky, you know, big uh, drag queen alligator character in that one. Like there is in in uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. No horrifying owl that will haunt your dreams well into your 30s like in Rockadoodle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, don't know. I, I, I guess it would be all right to go. We're working. Trish and I are working on a follow up, uh, and maybe it's worth going and doing like a, a quick survey of of the Don Bluth canon, and see if there's any tricks we missed the first time around. I was going to say it's always never a, never a bad afternoon sitting around watching those films. I uh, I can certainly agree. I do love Anastasia. I love. Uh, and I, and I like the Bartok movie that came after Anastasia. I think that whole vibe is cool. Um, the villain in that Rasputin's very creepy and uh, it's sort of like a later, probably less appreciated Don Bluth, but I feel like all his movies are, are sort of like part of the popular culture. Like, I don't think he has, you know, like an underappreciated. We, everyone saw Titan AE, like they've seen all these movies. Yeah. A troll in Central Park, I would maybe say, is the one that people tend go. to forget and neglect. Yeah, it's a tough because that troll is so unappealing looking to put that as your main, you know, it's not like one of these ones where you like you see him and you're like, oh, he's a cute troll, though. Like, no, he's gross. Yeah, he's, like, he's just yeah. got warts. And, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and also, too, I mean, not only with with stray dogs, does it does it have the Don Bluth element, but it's very clear to to see that you're you're also a horror buff and a horror fan. And that's, again, evident in the incredible you know, variant covers that you, that you did along in that series, giving homage to everything from seven to scream to, you know, silence of the lambs. Of course, I wanted to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to name your favorite horror movie of the ones that you've mentioned, but I was hoping that you might be able to explain for people who are not in the know, what is a giallo film? And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Mm -hmm. Are there any in that you, genre that you would recommend to someone who might not be familiar with them? Yeah. Uh, so Jello films are, it's a, it's a word. It means yellow. It's um, Italian, like horror slash crime movies from the like sixties, seventies up and through the nineties really. But they were sort of the most popping in the sixties and seventies, seventies really. Um, there's one called Torso the fucking rules. Um, they're sort of like, you know, movies where they're, they're like proto slasher movies where there's a, a killer that's chasing after somebody. They, they, they got something in their craw and they have to kill. And so we're following like a group of people that are, that are either investigating or uh, like they're going to be victims or they're trying not to be victims. So they're slasher movies, but unlike slasher movies, they generally don't have like supernatural uh, villains. Sometimes there's supernatural, like somebody, one of the people in in the story will be a psychic or there'll be, there's oftentimes like some way out thing that doesn't exist. Like, uh, you know, the victim's last, the last thing the victim saw is imprinted on their eye and you can, you know, photograph that and develop it and see who the killer was or something like that. They, they, they tend to take big swings. 
But what I dig about them is that they're very stylish. Um, and so there's always something like the, the big swings that they're taking, if they're not like plot ideas, they're sometimes like in, in terms of like style or just like, it'll be this very cheap movie that with very, uh, you know, like crass murders in it. But then for some reason, it'll just have like the most heartbreakingly beautiful soundtrack or the cinematography will just be beautiful. It's sort of like the Italian answer to like what Roger Corman was doing okay. where he would have like, you know, like just these genius filmmakers sort of just starting out and give them a little bit of money and let them take do their thing. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, uh, a path to legitimate movies in Italy so much as it was just sort of like everybody was doing everything. So the directors that were making spaghetti Westerns would do Jallo movies would do, you know, like, uh, gothic horror movies or whatever. They just sort of would, where everybody was sort of, uh, like, uh, craftsmen over there and they would just, you know, make different things. Okay. Uh, yeah. Corso is a great one. It's a, it's a, it's like a locked room murder mystery type thing where a, a bunch of people go on a, on a vacation and they start getting picked off at this vacation, but there's this great, I won't spoil it, but there's a moment in the in the movie where just everything twists on a dime, and uh, and you're watching one kind of movie, and then all of a sudden you're watching another kind of movie, and it's just brutal and scary, and it always has pretty girls in it and slasher movies, but but a little fancier. Okay, so this Friday, Torso, that's the one that I'm going to be watching then. Yeah, check it out. It's got a great poster too. We never did a, a Stray Dogs version of the poster because nobody fucking cares about it. <laughs> so I was like, somebody was like, we want to do a, a homage cover. And I was like, what about this one? And they were like, no, we want one that people will buy from us. We'll recognize. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things that you pointed out when you were giving your answer there is that the uh, the Giallo films, uh, not only with the cinematography, but you mentioned the, uh, the soundtracks. And... I wanted to pick your brain, and when you hear the name, and again, forgive my pronunciation, but when you hear the name Ennio Morricone, what is the first film that mm. pops into your head? Oh, probably Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, right? But he did a million of those Jallo movies too. I mean, it's, you know, he's he he just died a couple of years ago, but Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the one that you can just whistle if you think about him off the top of your head. He did the Untouchables. Yeah, he's great. He's done a ton. But what about you? What's your go-to? Well, I was going to say, again, I just think of the kind of triangle standoff, right? Where, you know, you can literally, the the beads of sweat start coming off your forehead as you're watching it. But, uh, but I, I mean, that's probably for someone who's a lot more in the know than I am, that's probably a basic answer, but, but that's the one that I'm throwing out. And I kind of wanted to also follow that up by just asking you because, you know, we, we live in the day an age now of, of pop culture cinema where scores are really not something that you you hear anymore. You know, everything's a song, everything's a single that's played on the radio. And I guess it, in your own opinion, do you feel that that art form has sort of become lost? Is Were we better off when, when films were actually scored? Or do you like the kind of transition that we're making where, you know, it's, it's a band, it's a song, it's something that you know and an artist you recognize? Uh, I mean, I think films are still scored. I, I think the I, I would argue with your premise. Uh, I, I think there 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 are not as many like uh, iconic scores coming out these days. But I think that's also just because there's not like movies have become sort of more 
like democratized, like the same way all entertainment and all media is, you know, sort of like, oh, this movie's for this group of people or this little, you know, like we only have to sell it to a small number of people and make this amount of money back. So there's not like these big giant Superman by John Williams scores mm-hmm. or Indiana Jones, you know, like there's not these Bernard Herman's out there that are doing like the music for the people, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> so they, they can be a little more specific. And also I feel like the, uh, the way that, that temp scores are used now, not that like, I feel like this is me talking out of my ass because I just like, I don't make movies. I just watch Blu-rays and <laughs> special features and stuff. But, but, but for friends of mine that have made movies, when you use a temp score, you just give the composer, like, here's what we're looking for. And then they give you back something that's, similar to the thing that you gave them, you know, like if you give them, you know, Bernard Herman or John Williams or something, or, or Neil Morricone, they'll just give you back a sort of like, Oh, something like this. And it's easy to just do exactly like a riff or something in that same vein, because then you don't have to like, when I'm doing a project for clients, I want to give them as close to what they ask for as possible. So I don't have to do notes because you don't, you know, generally get paid extra for notes. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you, kind of taking a trip down memory lane here, in in my research about you, I kind of discovered that you and I have have something in common in that we both have very fond memories of our local public library. And I just kind of wanted to ask you, what is it that you remember the most about reading books like Where the Red Fern Grows or Watership Down in your youth? And how have those influenced you as a writer? Um, I mean, I feel like there was a big gap in my because i i read a lot when i was young and then i went to art school after high school and then after art school so in in art school there was basically no reading going on it's sort of like a lost period because it was just all art like it was all drawing constantly or or, you know learning how to use computers and and that type of thing color coloring and photoshop um but then i sort of picked back up after and started getting books at libraries and used bookstores um, when I before I started working in comics when I uh, lived in the in South Dakota in the Midwest, um, and I I remember like before like when I was younger I would get so transported by the idea of like um, like the Boxcar Children or Lord of the Flies anything where kids would make their own society. <laughs> you know, where they would have to go. I'm, I'm still really captured by that idea. And those are library books that I remember like being the most taken away by where I was just like, I imagine. And I don't, I wasn't like running away from anything really. I had a pretty happy childhood, but just like all kids, you know, little girls want to be big girls, you know, teenage boys want to be adult men, you know, like it's just sort of like the idea of kids who skip that step where they're still kids, but they are, you know, the mayor of their fiefdom where they, where they control everything with a conch. Uh, so that was the sort of stuff that that really I was the most into when I was a kid was sort of like kid wish fulfillment, you know, home alone, blank check type stuff. Blank check. Know, just a kid. <laughs> There's a film blank title check. I have not heard in a long time. Blank check comes up a lot out here because it's written by the guy that wrote the book, uh, save the cat, which is a screenwriting book. And he, and and so he wrote this sort of like definitive book on how to write screenplays, but his, his famous film that he made was blank check just goes to show. Well, and, and you're so right. I mean, if you talk about wish fulfillment, the idea of being, you know, a preteen and given a literal blank check and for whatever yeah. reason, they 
let him cash it and gave this child buckets of money. And it's like, what would you do in, in that sort of scenario? And honestly, I would have done exactly that. I would have had a pool and a water slide and, and all that fun stuff. Or like rookie of the year, like there were a lot of of sort of like movies and books and 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 it's a it's a lane that I think still exists, but but I don't know if if I knew at the time that I was specifically psyched about that sort of idea, but it definitely when I think back on like what would I go to the library and look for, it's just like anything where it's kids getting into adventures without adults and and like sort of having their own worlds. That's what, uh, do you watch uh, Yellow Jackets? You literally must be reading my mind because that was literally going to be my next question to you. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Easily yeah, one of my new show. favorite shows and I cannot wait. I'm pretty sure the second season of that is actually coming back very soon. Yeah, this coming month, I think, March. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 100% looking forward to that one. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is if you could tell me a little bit about Jim Lee's X-Men number three and the role that it played <laughs> into pushing you into the world of comics. Yeah, that was the first comic that I got at a comic store that I had to, that I knew I had to come back to the comic store again. Like I, I hadn't, I'd, pro- I'd gotten books from like Spinner Racks, um, and different places before then, but Jim Lee's X-Men number three was the first time I bought a comic at a comic book store and, and realized that this was like an ongoing thing where I could go back the next, I thought I could just go back the next day. Like I just started going back whenever I possibly could because I didn't know when the books came out, but I would just sort of like (laughs) keep an eye out for the next X-Men. Um, but yeah, that was the last Chris Claremont issue, but I had no idea what that meant or or, you know, like what it meant on the larger scheme of things. I just knew I love the cover. It's uh, like a danger room scene, Wolverine and, and Colossus. And I think Gambit just going crazy in this. It's not even a very, you know, like people say that like the larger your figure is, the more impactful it is. And these are pretty small on the, on the cover. So, like some of the smallest I can imagine, like I can remember on a Jim Lee cover, you know, like there's, there's small characters in this big, in this big melee. Uh, but I just remember being so captured by that cover and then and then reading the issue and having no idea what was going on, uh, but just being like, I must know what happens next. And I must know what, you know, like where these characters came from. And and there wasn't trade paperbacks then. And there there wasn't really like uh, like basically it was just back issues. So I, I would dive into quarter piles and, and try and find back issues and figure out what what it all meant and i didn't really ever have any idea how it all fit together um until like the cartoon came on and that was only a a couple years after that or a year after that i started to understand like oh this character came from here i remember getting the the pride of the x-men cartoon pretty shortly after that from like a walgreens uh and and that's like a real good primer for for kids before there was an x-men cartoon there was just this pilot episode of an x-men cartoon where wolverine is australian um and and that's sort of like a that's where you meet Kitty Pride, where whereas in the animated X Men cartoon you meet Jubilee, it's sort of like the next generation. But Kitty Pride's like your your audience proxy character in that one, and and she meets all the X Men, and you sort of get a good like a good rundown of the Dave Cockrum, John Byrne X Men teams. And then in the in the X Men cartoon, it was you know basically the Jim Lee team. Um, but yeah, that number three was was the first one that got me where I had to come in all the time and read comics and then uh and then it was sort of like hot and heavy 
from then on, but it ended up being like, I could only get to the comic store if I got a ride to it. Um, but I could get to, you know, like newsstands or seven 11. So for like up through that next couple of years, it was like still, still catching them at newsstands or like, I remember getting like X forces off of seven 11 racks for years after that until, until Rob Liefeld went away. And yeah, I don't know. We're, <laughs> I feel like I'm down a rabbit hole now, but yeah, I, I hadn't seen art that cool ever before in my life. And I remember just being like, I have to, whatever this is, I want to be involved with this. No. And I think that that's just, like I said, I think it's, it's a cool story, you know, that I, that I stumbled upon uh, in kind of, you know, researching a bit about you. So I definitely wanted to make sure to, to bring it up and, and speak to you about it. Um, again, changing lanes here a little bit. You, from what I can see, have a very, very busy upcoming schedule with some of your signings, some of the cons that you have upcoming over the next few months. Um, Got to be pretty exciting because I know, obviously, the last few years have definitely not been very conducive to signings and, and cons. So what are some of the things that you look yeah. forward to the most when you make those types of appearances? Well, I just like, uh, you know, like meeting people who have read the stuff face to face because it's such a different um, experience than like online or interacting with somebody on Twitter or Facebook or something like just having being able to have a conversation um, and and sort of hear what people dug about stuff or like even like if they were confused about things it's sort of it's like a nice way to be able to sort of like check your work almost, you know, like this work, this work, like when I talk to people about stray dogs and they say like, Oh, you know, like it was heartbreaking or whatever. I'm always just like, all right, cool. That worked. You yeah. Know? Like, so like, like market research, but yeah, it's, and also, you know, just making comics is such a solitary job that it's nice to get out and see, you know, where my, where my books go to, you know, where they, where they get off to and what they get into. For so sure. It's nice. I've, I just finished five like i did five signings the week that the local man one came out i finished those up uh saturday um and so now i've got another one i believe on april fool's day in i think it's going to be in oakland at cape and cowell comics i'm not sure that it's all completely nailed down but that's sort of my next signing and then i've got a few conventions lined up but not as many as i, I need to get some more lined up because i I got real comfortable not doing them in the pandemic. I was, I had been doing like over 20 a year and, and then it was, and then I, and then they all stopped and I loved it. I was so happy to just chill. And now I'm on the other side of that where I'm just like, I need to go see places and people again and eat, you know, breakfast buffet and Sheraton's again. I need to really get back into that life. Well, hey, I mean, I know I'm not exactly close to you, but if you ever uh, find yourself uh, anywhere close to Toronto, Ontario, we definitely have a few great cons that are in that area. And I know that uh, myself and, and fans of yours would certainly be happy to see you north of the or south of the border, blah, north of the border. Jeez, I can't even speak right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you kind of yeah, just... Yeah, I love to. I, I've never done a, a Canada show, so I'd love to to make it up to one of those fan expo shows or something up there. Hopefully this year sometime. That'd be great. Hey, we'd love to have you. Now, I think I might be able to guess. Well, actually, based on your response there about the Sheridan breakfasts, I, I might be wrong. But judging from your T-shirt, I, I may have my answer already. But when you are getting ready to hit the road uh, to kind of do some traveling and, and to make con appearances, is it more important to have the right music in the car or the right snacks in the car with you? <laughs> uh, music. I am a, I grew up in a big family, so we were snacks, uh, 
we they, my family would like pack a cooler full of snacks and was very snack conscious going out into the because they were just trying to keep us shut up and they were they were cheap i mean not cheap they you know they were broke uh <laughs> and so <laughs> but then once i sort of once i got my own money in my own uh car i i'm much more of a like i'll just grab snacks when i get hungry on the road than than to plan and have have snacks when i when i take off i would say I have never gotten into my car with snacks as an adult person. That's, that's a guarantee music. Uh, this t-shirt is actually for Zeppelin comics, not for Led Zeppelin. I don't care about Led Zeppelin at all. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> hate to twist it on you like that. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, yeah. Put together a good playlist for the road. I find myself more listening to podcasts on the road sometimes too, but that's not as fun to drive to. It's more just sort of like, I feel like I need to get all this information inside my brain for who knows why. Do you have a go-to driving playlist or a go-to band that you like to crank yeah. when you're in the road car? Every year I'll sort of start a new playlist, which will be mixed with like new songs that I discovered that year and then mix in like old favorites that I forgot about. So I've started my 2023 one. I think it has like two songs on it right now. Okay. Let's see. Let's see what we got. All right. Let's see. It's not going to be, I'll tell you one thing. Nobody's going to be impressed by this. Oh, I think you're, I think you're humble. I think you're uh, not giving yourself enough credit here. <laughs> They're going to be like, what a find. <laughs> uh, the last track from, <laughs> this is a very eclectic three song playlist right now. Uh, the last track from the new SZA album uh, with Old Dirty Bastard in it, which also samples Bjork. So it really combines a lot of things I love. Uh, the love theme from the Eyes of Laura Mars by Barbara Streisand. And the song Flood by Jars of Clay, uh, 90s alternative Christian band. There you go. That is an eclectic mix. What a playlist. You are, you are not <laughs> joking. That is an eclectic mix, but definitely one that I can picture in my head as I'm driving down the, yeah. uh, the 400 series highway here. I don't think that those songs necessarily will go together in that order when the playlist gets sort of like finds its true shape and form, but, but they're all on there right now. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Last year's had a lot of mini Ripperton on it. I don't know why. I I try not to repeat artists, but it had too many Rippertons and I think two Demi Lovato songs. So very, I don't know what's happening with me right now. I don't know what's going on with my musical taste, but it's going in some weird, you know, some weird directions. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. The weirder, the better in, in my experience. Um, I'm not sure if you've, if you're familiar with them, but if you're looking to try out something new, there's an artist named Jamie Woon who has an album called Mirror Writing, which is in my opinion, uh, not only a great uh, album to drive to, but one of, uh, if not probably my top three favorite albums of all time. Jamie Wound. Jamie Jamie Wound. W O O N. Got it. That sounds much better than Wound. Yeah, yeah, it it is. Jamie. And he, all right, I'll check it out. Yeah, no, I I think you'd uh, you'd definitely find some of his uh, his tracks vibey. Um, taking a sharp left turn here, uh, I was just wondering if you could put these films in order from favorite to least favorite. Rover Dangerfield, Meet Wally Sparks, mm. and Back to School. Mm. <laughs> uh, Wally Sparks at the bottom, a real fight at top, uh, Rover versus Back to School. Back to School, technically a better movie, more quotable, more applicable to day-to-day -day life. But I will put Rover Dangerfield up top personally because I just I think it's a beautiful movie. I think the animation style in it is great. The animation's great. 
it also, like a Don Bluth movie, has just like very terrifying stuff, like this creepy drug addict boyfriend of the of the main of Rover Dangerfield's lady, uh, just like puts him in a sack and throws him over the the Hoover Dam, <laughs> like <laughs> very very violent, uh, but also you know very cute movie. Good songs. Rover's got a whole song about how he wouldn't pee on a Christmas tree. Uh, Rover Dangerfield for the win. Rover Back to school number two, Wally Sparks coming in, closing out number three. Respectable, you know, a bronze medal, not a not a not a loss. They just you know weren't number one. Yep. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's not very often um, in my kind of comings and goings that I encounter someone who has even a mild appreciation for Rodney Dangerfield. So whenever I happen to see that, I definitely can't leave it alone. Rodney. I would hope everyone had an appreciation for. I thought you were going to say Rover Dangerfield. And yes, nobody gives a shit about that besides. <laughs> now, one of the things that I, I feel like when you're a creator, uh, a writer, artist, whatever the case may be, but when you work in comics, especially in superhero comics, um, I think inevitably every creator is asked to answer the impossible dilemma of Superman versus Batman, Marvel or DC. Um, but I also know that you yourself are, have said that you're not really a character guy. There isn't really one that you're kind of drawn to that it's like, oh, I would love to write a, a Superman story. I'd love to write a, a Deadpool comic. But one thing that I thought I might be able to do for, uh, for you know, for fun would be I, I'm going to pitch you a scenario, two scenarios involving two different characters. You tell me which one you think that would work better as a, as a Tony Fleece book. So would you rather write- okay. I like this. Write or draw, uh, write and draw even, a comic about Crypto the dog getting zapped with a kryptonite laser by Brainiac, rendering him powerless, or a story about Raish al Ghul kidnapping Ace the Bat Hound and submerging him into a Lazarus pit. Hmm. I mean, I'd like both of those. It's just sort of like the opposite, right? Like one, you're taking a dog that has superpowers and taking them away, and then the Lazarus pit, you're sort of taking a regular dog and giving him juicing him up a little bit. I guess I would want to do, I would want to write this, not draw it. And I think I would probably have more fun with the crypto one. Um, but I would want him to get his powers back at some, you know, like I would be just excited to get him to, to where he had his powers again, because I like the idea. I've always liked the idea of stories that focus on the, on the dog. There's a great issue of Supreme that Alan Moore wrote that just focuses on Supreme's dog, where it's like the, you know, him going on an adventure by himself. Good dog. I think it's called, but, and early, like when stray dogs was sort of taken off, uh, of a reader of ours worked at, at Todd McFarlane productions. And he pitched to Todd, like, what about doing like a spawn dog crossover? And I had like in my head immediately just had the idea of just like, Oh, let, let's do, you know, Wanda Simmons' dog, you know, gets like somehow ends up with a Spawn costume and goes out, you know, and tries and patrol along with Spawn like that. Sort of like the idea of a of a canine sidekick, but just telling the story from their perspective. Uh, I like that a lot. So I, I my final answer is crypto. Yeah, final answer. Perfect. I was I was and honestly that was the one I was hoping that you would choose. Um... Did you like that? Did you see the Super Pets movie? Did you like that? I liked it. I did see it. And yes, I, I did like it. Um, I mean, I, I have a soft spot for, for anything that uh, 
The Rock and and Kevin Hart do. I find that their films are kind of like pizza. There's no bad one. There's just varying degrees of good at the end of the day. Right. Um, right. And yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, now, the last thing that I wanted to ask you here, uh, Tony, before we say goodbye, because we've been talking a lot about kind of legacy and kind of homage and love letters to kind of years past. Um, and, and specifically about the legacy that, that Image Comics has kind of put forward on, uh, on readers and, and on comic creators themselves. Um, obviously, I think it's, there's no argument to be made that your co-creator on, on Local Man, Tim Seeley, over the last 20 years has certainly ingrained himself into the fabric of that company, you know, Hack Slash, Revival, Loaded Bible, uh, Hexware, and now, of course, Local Man with you. Um, but I think it's interesting that you yourself are also well on your way to becoming an, an image comics icon in, in your own right, or, or certainly as far as, as I stand. And what I think that's interesting is that, you know, I've read stories and heard interviews about you and Tim talking about how you were teenagers going to get these books and looking up to your heroes in the comic book world. Do you ever stop to think that there may be a generation of kids who are doing the exact same thing that you are, that are going down to their local comic book shop, picking up your books, and may one day grow up to pen their own series published under the banage of or banner of image that would be in an homage to you. I mean, that would be crazy. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, I was at um, uh, Heroes Con this year. Me and Trish, uh, my partner on Stray Dogs, were both there. Um, and uh, uh, a young person threw a, a copy of My Little Pony in front of us to sign. And I said, oh, I didn't draw that one. And they said, oh, I drew it, uh, but I wanted you to sign it because uh, I grew up reading your My Little Pony comics and like that. And then that's why I love, love to draw ponies. So that was pretty crazy that like that sort of thing. It, it, I still picture, like you said, you know, I have a sort of, uh, I'm sort of a newcomer. Uh, so the idea that there's anybody out there that, you know, when you hear about people whose kids learn to read, reading our kids comics or, 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 you know, like kids who started out reading straight or started out reading My Little Pony and now they're teenagers and they, and they like stray dogs, like that sort of thing is, is wild. But yeah, the idea of anybody, hopefully the, the next few books that I put out, um, I'll be able to continue sort of like uh, carving out a lane that I think is, is sort of my own little lane and, and this sort of, it touches on other things, but it hopefully not derivative so that maybe people would, you know, see that and go like, well, all right, well, what's my idea? What's my take on that sort of thing? Maybe. I don't, I, I think it's too, uh, it makes my, it doesn't mix with my uh, self-deprecating Midwestern uh, <laughs> personality to think that it would ever influence anybody. But, uh, but I love the idea of sort of just like opening up doors like that, or, or sort of just like leaving doors unlocked, you know, like, you're I'm out here just doing my thing, being creative and, and somebody else seeing that and going like, oh, I want to do that, too. Like that, that I can definitely get behind. And I think that's sort of what the image founders did intentionally or unintentionally. You know, like you think of like when you hear the, the legend of it told, it's like they, you know, champions for creator rights and they set up this thing, this perfect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like they're the framers of the constitution, but yeah. they're just people that realize they could get a better deal if they did it for themselves. And the, the fallout of that was that they, they set up this place where everybody else could do that too, you know? And so it sort of it worked out great for me and for, you know, hundreds of other creators 
Um, so I, I picture myself as best case scenario being something like that, where I'll accidentally, while being selfish, set up something that other people could, <laughs> could hopefully jump off of and, and, and do their own thing. Well, accidentally or not, I, I certainly think that you're well on your way. Um, I want to thank you so much for for joining us today and and kind of giving us some insight into your process into this incredible, you know, new book with with Local Man. Uh, issue one is already out on shelves. Issue two is coming out next month. What can we expect in issue two? Uh, issue two. Uh, there's an old lady who says things, uh, says crass things. Everybody loves that rapping granny style. There's more robots. There's more Pepper the dog. There's you get to we get to do our sort of like interrogation scene, and then in the backup, like lots of Eric Larson-y, uh extreme action in in the second issue backup story. Really fun doing these backups and sort of like ch- changing the. Tim's not really changing the way that he draws so much as we're changing like the approach to the story every time. And so this one is sort of like real boombastic uh, heroes and villains just sort of flinging themselves at each other. So it's fun. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Make sure to keep your eyes out for issue number two of A Local Man Hitting Shelves next month. (laughs) I am again your host, Jordan Clay, speaking with the one and only Tony Fleece. Tony, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, real nice talking to you too. Thanks. Talk to you soon. 